Greetings, Covenant Hope Church. We continue our series in the Psalms this summer. And so if you will, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 98. We'll continue our series in the Psalms. Turn to Psalm 98, if you will. When I was a young boy growing up here in the Middle East, one of my favorite things to do each year was our family trip to the Wadis. My parents would pack up the car and we would drive to the Wadis. The Wadis, if you're not familiar with them, are these canyons in the mountains that water rushes through and so there are pools and they're covered by great sheer rock faces and walls of rock and mountains even in the, in the far distance and it's beautiful. And one of the favorite things that I did when I was there as a boy was to get up onto one of these rock faces and to shout, to shout as loudly as I could and to hear the reverberation of my words echoing back to me, sometimes from rock faces close by and so I could hear it more loudly and clearly, other times from rock faces further away and so it was more distant and faint. I would shout all kinds of stupid things like, Mark is the greatest, and then hear that repeated back to me. Mark is the greatest, Mark is the greatest, Mark is the greatest. It was dumb fun for a young boy, but it was just wonderful to enjoy the nature and to see uh, all of God's creation, but it was especially fun to hear those echoes echoing back to me, my own words. Our passage, Psalm 98, also has echoes of a kind. Many of the words that you find here in this psalm, some of the phrases, some of the themes, and some of the ideas are ones we've already seen as we've been working through these kingship psalms in Psalm 92 through 100. These psalms are all reflecting on the idea that the Lord is king. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is their king and is the king of the universe. But while much of Psalm 98 might sound familiar and feel like common ground from the last several weeks, I don't want you to tune out because, as we all know, repetition and reminders are for our good. They help to refresh our memories and to reflect in new ways on old truths. From the very first verse of this psalm, we're encouraged to do just that to find new ways to praise God for who he is and for what he's done. That's why we exist. Every man, woman, and child exists to praise and give glory to our God and King through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Psalm 98 bursts at the seams with praise to God. Each line reverberates to the glory of his name. So before we turn our eyes to read these verses, let's turn our hearts in prayer to the king and ask for his help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we turn to your word now that you would speak to us, you would speak through me and through this camera to those that listen, Lord, that you would help us to see wonderful things in your word, marvels, and that we would be led to worship you that we'd be led to worship you in truth and in spirit, and that we would be led to worship your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. The main theme of the passage we'll see is to praise the conquering King. 
to praise the conquering king. So if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 98 and follow along as I read it aloud. Psalm 98 says this, a psalm. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and with the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So as I mentioned earlier, the main theme of this psalm is to praise the conquering king. The psalm breaks into three stanzas or sections, and each one is made up of three verses. Each stanza or section calls for God's praises in light of three different roles that he fills. The first stanza, we praise him as savior, the second as king, and the third as judge. We're going to look at each of these in turn. So our first point is from verses one through three, and it's sing for the savior. Sing for the savior. Psalm 98 opens with a call to worship, an invitation, a summons for Israel to turn to the Lord in wholehearted worship. We've seen this kind of call before, this kind of summons. It says this, O sing to the Lord a new song. It's quite ironic that he says, sing a new song to the Lord, because in this opening line, he actually quotes the first line of verse Uh, verse 1 of Psalm 96. So even here in the first line and actually towards the end as well, we see echoes. We see echoes of Psalm 96, which Brian preached for us just two weeks ago. In fact, some of the exact same words and phrases, even the whole sentences are the same. By, By these words, sing to the Lord a new song, I don't think the psalmist's point is that we have to come up with entirely original songs each time we gather for congregational worship. Every time we sing together, we need to make a new song. Although I'm thankful to the Lord for new songs of praise, new Christian songs, and even old Christian songs being set to new melodies, old hymns that are being updated and modified in their language to make more sense to us today. I praise God for those, but I believe that the psalmist is encouraging us to find new reasons and new ways to praise God every day. God's mercies, we're told in the scriptures, are new every morning. And so we have new reasons to praise the Lord each and every day. 
You know, while I prepared this sermon, I wrestled with how to preach this psalm because of how many ways it is echoing and, and similar to Psalm 97, which we heard last week, and even more ways that it's similar to Psalm 96, which Brian preached two weeks ago. But, you know, in one sense, we're not trying to be innovative as preachers. Every week, whoever is preaching will open up the Bible, will read what is there, and will make the same point that the psalmist or whoever wrote it in whatever part of the Bible is making. We'll, we'll open it up to whoever's listening. And every week we'll hear about the glories of God and the wonders that, of, of the wondrous works that he's done. We'll learn about how worthy of our worship he is. We'll learn again about how he has worked salvation for his people through the death and the resurrection of his son. We're not trying to say anything new. Every week we're going to call for unbelievers to turn in repentance and faith to trust in him. And for believers to strive to fight their sin and to grow in holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. So in one sense, we really aren't trying to say anything new. But there is another sense, which I think the psalmist here is talking about, in which we as preachers and Christians want to work hard to say many of the same things in new ways. Not because we think that there is power in eloquence of speech, not because we trust in the wisdom of our words, but because when we do the hard work to wrestle with words, to encourage others to trust God, to turn to him when they're in trouble, to sing his praises anew, to rest in his amazing grace, to rejoice once again in his salvation. We actually enjoy God more. And we hope that those who hear it do too. John Piper has spent decades of his life devoted to ministry, preaching and teaching in the church and in a seminary, in addition to the teaching and preaching that he's done publicly, he's written dozens of excellent books. These books total over three million words. And here's what he had to say about his experience of learning how to say things in new ways. The effort to put the truth of God and all his ways and works into fresh language something that may have never been spoken before, is a way of coming near to God. Every sermon was an opportunity, not just to say, but to see and to savour the Lord. Every effort to speak the wonders of the word of God became a fresh seeing and a fresh savouring of him. The pressure to prepare a fresh word from God week by week was one of the greatest gifts of my life, he says. The effort to say beautifully was a way of seeing God's beauty. I believe that's what the psalmist is encouraging and enjoying in the first words of this psalm. So let me encourage you. Let me encourage you to consider that as part of your devotion to the Lord Jesus... As part of your worship of God, part of your disciplines as you study the word. I want to encourage you to try and put it into your own words. 
wrestle to explain it in beautiful ways and creative ways. Not necessarily writing new songs, though that would be wonderful. And perhaps you'll never get the opportunity to write sermons, though that also would be amazing. But when you read the scriptures, I want to encourage you to strive to find new words to give glory to God in response to what you see there. Perhaps that's writing your own private journal, writing thoughts down on the passages that you see and read and study and meditate on. Exercise your mind in meditating on the marvels of our King. Focus on expressing in beautiful ways and you will see the beauty of our Lord more and more. The rest of this first stanza, these, the remainder of verses 1 and 2 and 3, unpack the reason why we're called to sing a new song to the Lord. Simply because of the Lord's salvation. Because of the Lord's salvation, and we see that, because salvation is repeated in every single line here. Like Psalm 97, which used language that echoed God's appearance on Mount Sinai, these verses are filled with echoes from the rest of Scripture as well. First, the psalmist tells us that the Lord has done marvelous things. That is incredible acts he has done. And he employs a poetic figure of speech. And scholars would call this anthropomorphisms. That's a very complex sounding word, but it simply just means describing God with human characteristics. And you'll find this throughout the scriptures. It's important to understand this. That, for example, the scriptures will talk about God as having eyes. Or here in these verses, it talks about his right hand and his holy arm. But we know from scripture itself, other parts of scripture, that God in himself is spirit. He's not limited or contained to a body. And God's right hand and holy arm, therefore, are referring to something else. Not a physical hand or a physical arm. No, this is an image. This is the kind of image of a warrior king wielding a sword in battle and winning victory for his people. It's saying that God's power and by his power, he has won salvation for his people. This word salvation, it carries uh, the idea of winning victory. So in other translations, it says victory instead of salvation. Victory over God's enemies and deliverance for God's people. Now, this specific victory that this is referring to isn't named. There is no clue as to which victory God won in the past that this psalmist is reflecting on. And so this psalm could be used to reflect on all of the ways that God has delivered and saved his people. Maybe it's David who wrote this psalm, like many of the other psalms, and he's thinking of God's help when he conquered and delivered Goliath into David's hand and he won victory over the Philistines. Or maybe it's somebody else reflecting on the wars that were won under Joshua as God gave them victory over their enemies on entering the promised land. Even Joshua means the Lord saves. But more than likely 
This is an echo of the greatest act of salvation, the greatest act of victory and deliverance that God ever performed in the Old Testament. When the Lord showed his power and his might over the gods of Egypt and their Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus recounts that after this deliverance, Moses sang a song of praise to the Lord for delivering the people out of slavery in Egypt. And he sang, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. The Lord saved his people, conquering Pharaoh, to show his power, to show it, as this verse says, in the sight of all the peoples of the earth, so that his name would be proclaimed among all the peoples. Whichever act of salvation the psalmist is referring to, every single one of them is simply an echo of God's ultimate plan to save his people. The greatest salvation God has won. Salvation from the curse of sin and death. The salvation that God accomplished through his son, the Lord Jesus. God the Father sent his son to save his people. And the Son took on flesh to deliver them from their greatest enemy, their sin. When Jesus was born, Mary, his mother, also sang a song of praise to the Lord. And when he was presented in the temple in Jerusalem, Simeon took the baby Jesus in his arms and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples. We see that God's salvation was never intended to be kept a secret. It was intended to be seen and proclaimed in the sight of all the peoples. Jesus came to conquer our sins and to deliver us from death by offering himself for us. Jesus went to the cross where he took the wrath that was reserved for us because of our sins so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus lived for us and he died for us and he rose again for us. Jesus accomplished it all. Notice how the psalmist stresses here in Psalm 98 that it is God who accomplishes salvation. It's God's right hand. It's God's holy arm that works salvation for him. God doesn't need help. He didn't need his people's help in Egypt or in Canaan. And he doesn't need help now in order to save. He alone works salvation for his people. He alone is strong enough to do it. Salvation belongs to God and to God alone. So what must we do then? What must we do in order to enjoy this great salvation that God has won? How can we experience it? How can it benefit us? How can Christ's victory become our victory? The answer is simple. Turn and accept this good gift of salvation by faith. And even that faith is a gift from the Lord himself. So friend, if you haven't turned to Christ, if you haven't repented, repented of your sin and put your faith in him, what's holding you back? 
You can be saved from the wrath of God that is to come. You can be delivered from your greatest danger and your greatest enemy. Sin and God's wrath against it. Just humbly accept what has been done for you. Don't try to offer anything to God. Simply receive his grace. That's why we as Christians talk so much about grace. Grace means that it's undeserved, that it's unearned, that it's just received. It's simply received as a gift. And that's why Christians spend their time giving praise to God in songs like this psalm here in Psalm 98 and all the rest of the 150 psalms that are in the Bible. This is what sets true Christianity apart from every other form of religion in the world. Because at its heart, at the heart of Christianity, it's not about what you do. It's about what has been done for you by God himself. We don't meet God halfway. We don't offer to to reach out to him. He came to save us. He reached out his right hand and his holy arm to grab us and to save us. Just accept God's grace by faith today. So brothers and sisters, we are warned here too that we must be on guard against trusting in our works for for our standing before God. We don't do quiet times or pray or sing songs for God's approval. We sing because of what God has done to approve us already so that we could be counted righteous before him in his sight. It's like the old hymn, Rock of Ages, puts it. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I fly, to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. We really have nothing to offer the Lord. We come empty-handed, we come naked, helpless, and the Lord gives us dress. He robes us in righteousness. He gives grace, and he washes away our sin. It almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? But it isn't. It is true. This grace is offered by God to all who would receive it by faith. But why would God do such a thing? Why would he act to save rebellious sinners like us? Look at verse 3. It tells us there. He has remembered his steadfast love and his faithfulness. God chose to save his people because God loved them. Even when we were unlovely, even when we were rebels, even when we were his enemies, God remembered his faithfulness and his steadfast love. The idea that God could ever forget something is ridiculous. And so we see another way in which the Bible attributes something to God that's only true of men, but it means that he called this to mind. He called to mind his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And God's steadfast love and faithfulness aren't two different things. They're like two sides of the same coin. And together they refer to the idea of God's covenant-keeping, loyal love that he makes with his people. 
That's why verse 3 tells us that he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. This is not God's general love towards all of creation, but his specific covenant love towards his particular people, Israel. But we know from even from the very beginning of the scriptures that this wasn't limited to Israel alone, was it? Remember God's covenant with Abraham? God made promises to Abraham that through him he wouldn't only bless his offspring, but that he would also bless all the families, all the nations of the earth. Verse 3 echoes these promises. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. We at Covenant Hope are evidence of the truth of this psalm. None of us belongs to the house of Israel by birth. We have been welcomed in to the salvation of God, the God of Israel. Through the saving work of a Jewish man, the Lord Jesus. God fulfilled his promise to bless the whole world through Israel by sending his one and only son as the saviour of the world. In these opening verses, we've heard echoes of God's covenant faithfulness to Abraham and his promises. We've heard echoes of his salvation work in Egypt through the Exodus and Moses. We've even heard echoes from previous Psalms that we've studied this summer. Echoes which reverberate right through onto the pages of the New Testament in the songs of Mary and Simeon. They may not be obvious at first glance, but as we soak ourselves in the scriptures, we begin to hear the faint echoes and they get louder. So let me encourage you, continue to read and reread your Bible. Listen carefully and closely to these echoes. God put these echoes here. You will hear his voice more fully and more deeply as you pay attention to the echoes that the authors put there under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The psalmist encourages us to sing for our Saviour in verses 1 through 3, and then the praise gets louder and louder in verses four through six, which call us to cry out to our king. Cry out to our king. Look with me at verses four through six. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. That phrase, make a joyful noise, that's used at the beginning of verse 4 and then in, again in verse 6. It's, it's like a frame, like a sandwich for this stanza. And that phrase, make a joyful noise, can be translated, shout for joy, like it is in the NIV. In the CSB it says, shout to the Lord, be jubilant. Shout for joy and sing, shout triumphantly in the presence of Yahweh, our King. Another version says, shout out praises to the Lord. Break out in joyful shout and sing. 
the joyful noise being made is not the instruments that are listed in these verses, but the voices of God's people. In fact, it's the same word, that word, make a joyful noise or shout loudly. It's the same word that's used for the shout that the people of Israel used in the book of Joshua. When Joshua led God's people into the promised land and they conquered the city of Jericho by walking around it and shouting loudly until all the walls fell down. The psalmist here invites all the earth to cry out to the Lord. All the peoples of the earth are invited to come and sing praises to the Lord. But this crying out is not a cry of distress as we've said, it's a shout of joy. Because the Lord is the victorious King. The Lord desires that all peoples would enjoy His salvation and to sing His praises. We're called to make disciples of all nations by the Lord Jesus. So let us strive to be a community that works together to invite people to come and worship and sing the Lord's praises. To know His salvation and to give Him praise. Let's be the kind of people that would Invite others to come and know this King, the King of Kings, the one who's sovereign over our lives and is worthy of all of our worship and obedience. We long for more and more people to join us in celebrating the salvation of King Jesus, but often we're fearful. We're fearful about getting it wrong or how people might respond to us. Perhaps they'll respond negatively. And that's why God hasn't called us to do it alone. He's given us brothers and sisters in the church to join in telling people about King Jesus. Jesus didn't even send his own disciples out on their own. He sent them out two by two. And Paul often speaks in his letters about all of his fellow co-workers or partners in the gospel. And he even asks churches to pray that he wouldn't be afraid, but would be bold in sharing the gospel as he ought to. So ask other members in our church, ask other Christians you know to join you as you seek to make him known, as you seek to make people uh, know about King Jesus and the gospel. I promise you that if you do this together as brothers and sisters, it will, I guarantee it will be encouraging to you. No matter how people respond, doing it together is a great joy as we serve our King. The psalmist here responds in exuberant worship. It, he piles up praise upon praise to God. And in verses 5 and 6, he calls for musical accompaniment. The lyre, he says, sing with the lyre, which was like a small harp that could be easily transported. The lyre could be used to produce the sound of melody, which he says. In other words, to produce a tune which could be used to sing praises to the Lord. So this cry isn't just about making loud noises. It's melodious. It, it is pleasant sounding to the ears of the hearers. And it's a pleasure to the Lord. He delights in the praises of his people. In addition, the psalmist calls for praise to be sung with trumpets and with the sound of the horn. Trumpets and ram's horns were used by God's people as they went in to conquer the land that God promised them. 
So as I referred to the, the people walking around the walls of Jericho and shouting from the book of Joshua, Joshua actually used trumpets and horns to signal when people were to shout their battle cry, their great shout of joy, bringing down the walls of Jericho. These instruments were all to join in the praises of God's people to their king. So if you are a member of Covenant Hope and you know how to play an instrument, but you've been keeping it a secret for some reason, I do want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to talk to Josue Romualdo. He's our nominated deacon of music. If God has given you a talent that could aid in the worship of God's people and help in their songs of praise, why wouldn't you want to bless our church by sharing it? Perhaps the reason you haven't shared is because you're nervous. Maybe you're thinking, oh, I don't really want to be the center of attention and play the instrument for others. Well, I have great news for you. Even if you alone are leading the whole congregation, you wouldn't be the center of attention. Look back with me at verses 4, 5, and 6. We're told that all our praise is directed toward the Lord, our King. We make a joyful noise to the Lord. We sing praises to the Lord. And we do it all before the King, who is the Lord. It's like the victorious savior of the first stanza is being crowned as conquering king with the songs of his people in verses six through, uh, four through six. This joyous occasion calls for great shouts of joy, melodious tunes on the lyre and blasts of the trumpet and the horn. It's like the kings of Israel would be celebrated when they were established in their rule as king. Or perhaps when they took the throne or when they returned from a great victorious battle. But notice that while instruments are encouraged, the primary instrument, so to speak, are the voices of God's people. That's what is commanded here in verses 4, 5, and 6, is to sing praises and to shout for joy. So while all might not play an instrument, Everybody can and is called to raise their voices in praise loudly to the Lord. And the Lord delights in the praises of his people. That's why the focus of our worship through song at Covenant Hope is the congregation's voice. It's congregational worship. We aren't trying to have the loudest music or the most elaborate instrumentation or band. Our music team serves to help the congregation to raise their voices. The truth of God's salvation that we saw in verses 1 through 3 has given way to the joyful, melodious cries of his people in verses 4 through 6. The truth about God or theology of verses 1 through 3 should always lead us to praising God or doxology like in verses 4 through 6. That's also why our songs are filled with the echoes of Scripture. The songs we sing as a church are echoes of truths and even sometimes the very same words 
that we find in the Bible. Or as we say in our membership class, we want to sing the word. We pick songs that are saturated with biblical truths. Sometimes they're long stanzas or long verses with lots of words. It's because we want to sing in response to who God has revealed himself to be. And Psalm 98 models this for us by offering praises based on who God is and what he's done. So when you don't feel moved to praise, maybe you don't feel like raising your voice when you sing to the Lord. You know, the best remedy for that is reflecting on the truths of who the Lord is and what he's done for you. The marvelous deeds that he's done in the act of salvation by sending Jesus to redeem you from your sins. And so oftentimes just reflecting on the very lines of the songs that we're singing will start to rise up a joyful noise within you. Our theology, it serves as logs which keep the fire of our doxology burning hot and bright. And it's hard to believe that it would be possible. But these praises that we see in 4 through 6, they get even louder in the last stanza. Verses 7 through 9. Because all of creation joins in the praises and the joyful noise that God deserves because he comes to judge. And that's the third point. Rejoice in the judge. Rejoice in the judge. Turn back to verses 7 through 9 and listen as I read them one more time. Let the sea roar and all that fills it the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and peoples with equity. The psalmist again employs poetic figures of speech. He gives inanimate objects like seas and hills, human characteristics. And we shouldn't interpret these verses literally. Seas don't roar. Rivers don't have hands. Hills or mountains don't sing. Rather, the psalmist envisions all of creation rejoicing at the coming of God in his role as judge because the whole of the universe will be affected by the judgment of God. Genesis 3 tells us that all of creation was affected by sin, by the sin of Adam and Eve. And so all of creation was cursed. It fell and now groans for the curse of sin to be undone. The effects of sin touch every part of the world that we live in. All that God has made has been tainted by sin. And so God has acted in Christ to make all things new making all things new, not just his people, but the whole world. The language here of creation roaring and clapping and singing aloud in cosmic praise is found only in one other place in the Old Testament. We hear echoes of this same kind of language later in the last section of Isaiah the prophet. 
In chapters 40 through 55, which are sometimes referred to as the book of consolation or the book of comfort. In these chapters, Isaiah comforts God's people with the hope of God's restoring all things in heaven and on earth. The psalmist understands that in order for this to take place, God must come as judge. The curse can only be undone when the cause, sin, is judged. But this is good news. It's a cause of joy here. Not only for the physical world, but for God's people who dwell on it too. God's salvation comes through judgment. We see the psalmist connecting salvation and judgment in this psalm by tying them together with the Lord's righteousness. Did you notice that? Look back with me at verse 2. It says, The Lord has made known his salvation... He's revealed his righteousness. Here, salvation and righteousness in these parallel lines are used uh, synonymously, as if they mean the very same thing. And in verse 9, he says, He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Both God's salvation and his judgment show his righteousness. That is, God puts right what is wrong through salvation and through judgment. It's easy to understand how judging wicked people who have done wrong things puts right what's wrong and shows God's righteousness. But how does God's salvation of wicked sinners reveal his righteousness, you may ask? How can God be righteous and forgive guilty sinners? How could a good and just judge let guilty people go? How can the Lord judge the people with equity or fairness and not just condemn the whole world? Well, this apparent tension between God's holy justice and his loving mercy towards his people runs through the whole Old Testament and is never really answered. It's only answered with the arrival of Jesus and through his saving work. The Apostle Paul wrestled with this very tension himself and he resolves it in Romans chapter 3. He echoes the psalmist by telling us that God has shown his righteousness in salvation through judgment. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been made known apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That is a, a wrath-satisfying sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. Why did God do this? Why? Paul tells us. It was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over. God had ignored for former sins. 
God, who is holy and just, can't just ignore sins forever. He can't pass over them. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. At the cross where Jesus died, we see the righteousness of God on display in salvation through judgment. The Lord Jesus willingly took the just wrath, the judgment that we deserve, so that we could go free. God upheld his righteousness by putting forward Christ as a sacrifice for our sins, sins that he had formerly passed over, so that the Lord can be a just judge and a merciful Savior. Because the price for sin was paid at the cross so that we could by faith receive the gift of salvation and be declared righteous by God. This is the heart of the gospel, that God justly forgives wicked sinners by Christ satisfying justice for us by going to the cross. That's why all of creation sings for joy that he comes to judge the earth. When the risen Christ returns, he will put all things right. And for those that are trusting in him, justice has already been served at the cross. And they only know God's favor and his grace now. Creation can't wait for all things to be made new when the judge comes. The hymn, Joy to the World, which we often sing at Christmas time, is a, a hymn that's actually based on this psalm. And it expresses the joy that will be felt when our King returns. It says, Joy to the earth, the Saviour reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Psalm 98 is a call to praise the Lord as the victorious saviour, as the triumphant king, and as the righteous judge. Ultimately, each is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our victorious saviour, who conquered sin and death through his death and his resurrection. He is the triumphant king that's worthy of us raising our shouts of joy to. And he is the righteous judge who will come to judge the earth in righteousness. This side of the cross, we have even greater reason to echo the praises of Psalm 98, joining in with all of creation in longing for the Lord Jesus to return when he's going to make all things new. And then we'll sing our songs of praise before his throne forevermore. The echoes of his praises will ring out into eternity.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise, just as this psalm does. We give you praise for what you have done and for who you are. You are the Savior, you are the King, and you are the Judge. And you have sent your Son, Jesus, to be our Savior, to be our King, and to take the judgment that we deserve for our sins. Lord, we pray that you would help us to enjoy these truths, that they wouldn't be merely academic, but that they would burst forth in shouts of joy and praise in our lives, and that we would live in such a way that every act that we do is worshipful to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.